Hi, this is Dr. Sarah Waters, author of an upcoming monograph on Lewis and Shakespeare. You're listening to Pints with Jack. If the White Witch could have looked a little further back, into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, that the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. This is Pints with Jack, Season 6, Episode 39, A Narnian Vision of the Atonement, After Hours with Dr. Charles Taliaferro. Welcome everyone, here on Pints with Jack we're reading our way through the works of C.S. Lewis, and those of you who watch our YouTube channel may have seen my recent interview with Mako Nagasawa, where we were talking about different theories of the atonement. And this was initially prompted by my re-listening to our episode in Season 1, where Lewis discussed the atonement in mere Christianity. Well, today we've got something of a follow-up to that episode, which nicely coincides with Narnia Month. And in this episode, I'm going to be discussing a Narnian vision of the atonement with its author, Dr. Charles Taliaferro. Dr. Charles Taliaferro is a philosopher specializing in theology and philosophy of religion. He is an emeritus professor of philosophy at St. Olaf College, a senior research fellow at the Institute for Faithful Research, and a member of the Royal Institute of Philosophy. He is an author, co-author, editor, and co-editor of 20 books, including Aesthetics, A Beginner's Guide, A Brief History of the Soul, and the book which we'll be discussing today, A Narnian Vision of the Atonement, A Defense of the Ransom Theory. Very appropriate, given that this season we've just read the first book in the Ransom Trilogy. Dr. Charles Taliaferro, welcome to Pints with Jack. Thank you very much, David. I'm happy to be here, and I love the title of Pints with Jack. (laughs) Thank you. Well, we we just figured that um, Lewis liked to have a pint with his friends in The Eagle and Child and talk about what he was thinking about, and so we're basically doing the same thing. Excellent. Well, today I'm actually not enjoying a pint, but a cup of Earl Grey tea. Uh, are you drinking anything at the moment? In the next room, I'm, I was having a gumbacho, which does have a tiny little alcohol content, about about as much as a glass of orange juice. So it's not very <laughs> intoxicating. <laughs> well, either way, we can still cheers. Cheers. So I began by giving you a very short bio, but would you mind just filling in the details about yourself? I suppose I fell in love with philosophy as as a teenager, largely because I had uh, horrible older brothers who were constantly criticizing me, you know, just for everything. I mean, it was kind of absurd. Like you, you might say "good morning" and you would get it "good morning." You know, everything would be, <laughs> and so philosophy, I discovered reading um, a little history of the Greeks and so on, I discovered a world where um, Plato, Aristotle and others would actually argue with each other and they would come up with reasons and they would do so respectfully. So philosophy was, <laughs> I w- it was an asylum away from these tyrannical older brothers uh, who are still with me, but we're on friendlier terms now. <laughs> I came to um, Christian faith as um, in college, I was at a study community in England, actually southwest of London, in a, in a manor house, much like the professor's manor house in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It was really Lewis's work that 
challenged me as a very lapsed Christian and sort of adrift with combination of naturalism, Eastern mysticism, and, and so on. Mm-hmm. And the Narnia Chronicles in particular, kind of, I read one a day, and then I've since reread them countless <laughs> times. But that was a just a brilliant week of just having one after the other. And so I, it was a total immersion experience. And I've gone on to be um, a professional philosopher. So I have three master's degrees and a PhD, but that was nine years of graduate school Oof. while teaching at the University of Massachusetts in Boston. And I've had the pleasure of uh, being a visiting scholar, both at Cambridge and Oxford, the two places where Lewis was uh, professionally. And most recently, I addressed in person the C.S. Lewis Society in March in Oxford. So Lewis has, has kind of been a, a companion along the way, my whole adult life. And even though the Narnia Chronicles are children's written for children, um, as Lewis would say, they're written for children of, of any age. But I didn't read them until I was uh, 20 years old. But um it's certainly been very nourishing over the decades. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. After you'd read the Narnian Chronicles, what did you go to next? It was a kind of double header with Tolkien. It was, um, you know, The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, The Similarion. Eventually, uh, The Similarion was not available at that time, but eventually, I kind of just entered combination of Narnia and Middle Earth between those, as well as undertaking a kind of, well, a formal study of um, a philosophy of the Christian religion in a way that is philosophical underpinnings. Actually, while I was still an undergraduate, I traveled to, including places like India, I was in Afghanistan, I was in Iran during the days of the Shah. But um, looking, reading the Quran, reading uh, various sacred books like the Bhagavad Gita and so on. So while I entered the, the world of Christianity through Narnia and Middle Earth and so on, it was also for me a time of entering into the world of world religions. And then I've I've spent my life working in philosophy of religion as well as philosophy of mind, aesthetics, ethics, given talks in Iran. So Christian-Muslim relations have been very important to me. So that set me on the path of uh, conversation and dialogue in South America, Russia, China, and England, a, a place which I gather is close to you, <laughs> given your Earl Grey teacup. Mm-hmm. It's, it's close to my heart, if not distance. I actually live in La Crosse, Wisconsin, in the United States. Well, we will get to Narnia again in a little bit. But let's, uh, let's first begin by explaining some terms that we're going to be throwing about in this interview. What do we mean when we talk about atonement? And what do we mean when we talk about atonement theories? Atonement in English, perhaps not commonly used now, but as a theological term, it literally means at one minute. And a term we are more accustomed to are terms like reconciliation or in the Christian world of redemption. So atonement has to do with uh, atonement, reconciliation or redemption between human beings and God, but then also between each other. When I've nicked your computer or something and some atonement is essential, we're pretty acquainted with things like the process of confession, forgiveness, 
um, restitution, replacing the computer, transformation, and, and so on. All these terms come into play in just human-to-human uh, intercourse. But it's also a major, major theme, obviously, in Christianity. Um, the principal work of Christ is to be the atoning agency uh, in terms of our becoming one and united with God. And what about atonement theories? Right. Well, what's interesting, among other things, is that while atonement is central to Christianity, in our creeds, let's say the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, Chalcedon, and so on, Athanasian Creed, it's not spelled out exactly how it is that Christ brings about atonement or atonement with us. Atonement does, it comes into Yom Kippur, it's evident in Leviticus and the Hebrew Bible or the Christian Old Testament, but how is it that we are able to achieve this union with God? So one very common view, and certainly there's a great deal of scriptural backing for this, is that Christ in some ways is the substitutory death, that is, Christ takes on the effects of sin or wrongdoing, um, suffers, and this suffering is often thought of as a kind of vicarious suffering. Christ acts as a surrogate suffering in our place in order to take away the sins of the world. Uh, That's one account. Sometimes it's called penal substitution, like penal as in juridical or as in punishment, taking a punishment for somebody. There are more psychological accounts of the atonement, of how it is that Christ atones for us. A a popular one now, propounded by Eleanor Stump, is that Christ, in a way, through his cry of dereliction on the cross, unites to his person the alienation, the guilt, the wrongdoing of all wrongdoing through all time. And by becoming united with Christ's loving embrace of us, Uh, we then undertake this transformation. But uh, there is another theory called the ransom theory. And you can find this in scripture as well as these other accounts in a way. And on this view, Christ is the ransom uh, that is the costly sacrifice whose death and then resurrection promises a restitution and transformation for us. So it can be combined with these other accounts, but it is, in effect, one of the earliest, the fathers and mothers of the church, first century's origin in the second century, Gregory of Nyssa in the fourth century, Maximus the Confessor. A lot of these theologians actually saw the The whole point of Christ's birth, teaching, miracles, passion, death, and resurrection as freeing us from the power of sin, the devil, and death. It was was this this tripod kind of notion. And in early uh, theology, and this is in, in the New Testament as well, in some respects, the ransom theory was Uh, understood as a ransom paid to free us from the devil in a kind of hostage crisis. That is, for Gregory of Nyssa and these others, by um, human aboriginal sin from day one to the present, 
we remain in a kind of state of captivity. And so Christ then liberates us through overcoming our captor. And if it's outright supernatural, this the captor would be uh, the figure of Satan or the devil. If we treat that metaphorically, not as a literal supernatural being, incorporeal spirit, but we understand by the devil, the demonic, uh, when this could be understood to be a liberation from systematic institutionalized evil, or the kinds of habits that bind us to sin, such as, you know, vanity, wrath, lust, addiction, and so on. So it's, it's, a, it's a kind of liberation model that also is a very much in keeping with restitution. Restorative justice is a very big um, item on the agenda in America. And, and th- well, through much of the, the West, but also to some degree um, in the East, say, for example, there's still great tension between China and Japan for harms done during the, the Second World War. Is some restitution merited here? And in the ransom theory, you have Christ or Aslan and Narnia, as it were, freeing Edmund and Christ freeing us from captivity of either the witch or from the demoniac power of evil and leading us out of that and then restoring that which is broken. And this is principally the restoration of life over against death. That would be the principal central uh, vision of the ransom theory, taking us out of um, death and bringing us into life. So it's a real, uh, you mentioned Christus Victor or um, the victorious Christ. It's a liberation theology. So how do these different atonement theories interact with each other? Because I know some people who are very partial to penal substitutory atonement, they say that this is what Jesus did and that we should ignore these other models. And others try and bring all of these different models into tension or uh, into harmony with each other. What do you make of that? Yeah, well, C.S. Lewis himself actually claims that the more than one model can be healthy because it gives you a different metaphor or lens by which to understand the work of Christ. And the book that uh, I've just written is meant to be a friendly book. So we're not out to go after any of the competition. So I think it's chapter four, which is uh, the ransom theory is a good bedfellow. My wife said, don't use that, just as a good companion to, to travel with, with, whatever metaphor, again, you prefer. So I'm not, as it were, going after these other accounts. However, while we're on the subject, I will say that one of the challenges of the penal substitution theory is how can the suffering of an innocent person take away hmm. uh, a, a penalty that someone else bears? Also, uh, for some of us, including me, punishment is not always uh, deemed a a matter of an an ill or wrongdoing. Uh, Since retiring from full-time teaching in the classroom, I work with some prisoners in doing philosophy, one of whom was in for kidnapping and murder. And uh, he has told me he does not see his 
punishment of incarceration as being wrong, but as, as having a purgative or cleansing role. So punishment is not always ipso facto bad. However, what the ransom theory would give you is that uh, punishment alone, even if it's deemed to have a purgative transformative role at best, and it often doesn't do that in the United States prison system, for example, Uh, I don't know about Britain, but um, it gives you the idea that what is needed is for you to be let out of the prison of your own making, so that it's not enough as we're to open up a prison door to get somebody out of the prison of wrongdoing, which again could either be real, a real prison, material, corporeal, or it could be drug addiction, alcoholism, rage, um, all kinds of forms of narcissism and so on. And an image I use in the book, and, and this is something that I think Lewis has in Narnia, is it's a participatory view of freedom. So once in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan rises from the dead, from the stone table, due to the deeper magic, begins to work death backwards. When Aslan liberates those that are dead, those those creatures that the witch has turned to stone, Aslan has the freed creatures join in the overcoming of the witch's army. So it's the other lions, it's uh, it's Lucy with her vial of healing ointment. It's very participatory. And I like to think of um, about four to five years ago, a group of Thai uh, football players, (laughs) or we would say soccer players here in the United States, were in a cave and they required being let out by Navy SEALs, Thai Navy SEALs, who had to share an aqualung with these boys, bringing them out of the prison of these caves. And similarly, in the ransom theory, as well as in Narnia, God in Christ is understood to, as it were, to be our companion in the way, that by identifying with his overcoming through passion, death, and resurrection, the torture and the um, ignominy of the cross. This is where you are led out of the cavern, the prison, into freedom. If you're listening and you're a penal substitution person, you don't have to give that up. But the ransom theory gives you a motif or a lens and I would say some truth, some illumination um, to the work of Christ that it's I'll just say it's not only through penal substitution, but it's also through vicarious identification. That is, Christ or Aslan identifies with us to the point of lovingly taking on the cost of our sometimes at worst homicidal ways, like my prisoner friend, or for those of us that are less dramatic, but still, seven deadly sins, pride, anger, lust, envy, sloth, averseness, and gluttony. You can remember those by mm-hmm. pale sag, P-A-L-E-S-A-G. It's a good way to remember it. It's by Christian teaching, often the ancients to today, is you mortify a vice through the opposite virtue. So you mortify the vice of pride through uh, humility and courage. And of anger, you mortify that through gentleness and so on. And by modeling these virtues, Eustace, Edmund, 
uh, even Jill, you know, all the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve in the Narnia Chronicles come to a kind of transformed life. And that gives you something more than penal substitution, but not necessarily something less. Hmm. So you can still hold it, um, as well as some of these other accounts, but it gives you something that I think is missing in these other accounts. I definitely I think I would say that it's it's also one of the most flexible atonement theories because there's a lot of different ways that you can cash it out as to what actually is this ransom, who is it given to and why. Um, there's a whole load of ranges there. But I loved your example of the Thai divers because it's also beautifully symbolic of the, the, the Navy SEALs are descending to the depths, just like Christ descended to the depths and bringing up captives. But let's talk about Narnia. You've mentioned the stone table and Aslan's sacrifice a few times now. What was it that made you want to write a book about Narnia and the atonement? I think that it was the book I wanted to write before I die. Since, um, you know, you read my bio at, at 20-some books, I've actually now, if you count everything I've co-edited, it's 41 books that I've edited, co-edited, authored, or co-authored. And I had a, a potentially life-threatening injury uh, two years ago. And the one thing I regretted was not writing on Narnium because it was absolutely pivotal in my um, actually rejuvenation when I was um, 19 and 20 years old. I had gotten very deep into hallucinogenics, and my girlfriend was addicted to heroin. It was a very, very dark place. And it was really the figure of Aslan, it was, which is, um, is actually not a mere allegory for Lewis. Lewis claimed to hate allegories. Of course, he wrote an allegory called The Pilgrim's Regress, mm-hmm. but he said that was my least favorite book. But anyway, Aslan is actually, from Lewis's point of view, It's what Christ would be if there was a place like Narnia. So in effect, from Lewis's point of view, Aslan is Christ. When I was uh, faced with this life-threatening illness, I was bombarded with images of lions everywhere. I taught at St. Olaf College for 36 years. Our mascot is a lion. I go to a church dedicated to St. Mark's. I can't go in the doorway without seeing a lion with wings on it. So I'm just in this moment of crisis. I'm not wearing my school tie, but I looked down at my school tie and there are about 30 lions on it. So I thought, (laughs) okay, I give up. I'm going to write about you. So it was really a debt to, in a way, a a former uh, teacher, because I regarded Aslan as a kind of teacher or professor uh, and one of the best I've ever had in my life. So it's a, a debt of honor in a way. Well, that's definitely a motivation <laughs> and one way to choose which book to write next. So I, I, would, I would request that for your next book, you, you don't suffer significantly before deciding. <laughs> so let's, let's dig into Aslan's sacrifice in particular, because his sacrifice in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is actually one that sometimes confuses people. And I certainly remember as a child trying to wrap my head around those mysterious words that I quoted at the beginning, that Aslan said that there was a deeper magic, not just the deep magic, and the consequence of his sacrifice. And then when I got a little bit older, 
I started seeing some more dissimilarities with the crucifixion, which is this clearly, I want to say an allegory, but let's just say analogous with, uh, because Christ's sacrifice, depending upon your theology, either um, is, is blood shed for the world or the elect, if you're saying a Calvinist, but with Aslan, it's just for Edmund. So with all of that, what do you make of Aslan's sacrifice on the stone table? What's going on? And for an atonement theory, how does it work? Yeah, well, I think the way it works, and especially in light of all seven of the Chronicles of Narnia, is that you um, you learn in this fuller picture when the witch negotiates with Aslan and the substitution is made of Aslan for the witch, you begin to see through it as not a matter of Christ or Aslan freeing us due to a pact with the witch, as much as it is a giving of himself, of Aslan, in order to liberate Edmund, in order to kind of... Edmund, in the line of the witch in the wardrobe, has already asked for forgiveness. He's already implicitly confessed. What else needs to be done? Why not just, um, you know, that's it. But actually, what needs to be done is Edmund, and as we learn later, needs to be transformed from a position of being traitorous. Uh, and the work of treason needs to be, as it were, overcome. And by reading, uh, say, The Magician's Nephew, which is a prequel to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you find out that the witch is one of the first traitors in Narnia. So when she says, oh, the deep magic, all traitors belong to me as my lawful prey to kill. Well, she herself is a traitor. So does she, she's supposed to kill herself? Is that what should happen? And you also see in The Magician's Nephew that the witch is not set up to be a, a hangman, hang person, to execute things on behalf of Aslan and the emperor beyond the sea, because in fact, the witch is banished from Narnia in that aboriginal kind of creation story in The Magician's Nephew. So what's happened here is um, what I call the, the free will defense. That is, if, as I reconstruct it, if you or Edmund give yourself over to the powers of um, darkness, sin and evil, then in a way you become its lawful prey. That is, you in a way bring on to yourself the calamities that you have. And as I mentioned, working with a prisoner, now he kidnapped and then murdered somebody. So he needs to confess that, but also something else needs to happen. He needs to be transformed. And also, he can't do it, but God can bring back to life those whom we have marred, killed, shortchanged, and so on. So what happens on the substitution is there's a sense in which Christ shows us the mirror opposite of sinning and wrongdoing, that is, of receiving the effects of sin that we ourselves participate in daily. God takes this and then bursts out from within it into life. So the deeper magic is the idea that someone, the, the innocent person who uh, powerfully is willing to take on evil and 
reverse it can in a way liberate us. Imagine that you injured somebody and someone else, a saving figure, we'll call the person Jesus rather than Jesus, but Jesus gives, um, don't make him a hymn, gives his blood to the person you've injured to bring the person back to life, to actually rescue them. Well, it's not just you're asking the person you've injured to forgive you and so on. But imagine the blood type of the Jesus character just matches perfectly. It's type O and he's there. It's also participating in this making well again that which has been broken. And so for my prisoner, it's in a way commending to God the um, the families of the victim and the victim uh, herself whom he killed. And also praying that God in God's um, indestructible love to whom all hearts are open and all desires known will in some ways redeem and transform the person he killed. And he may well spend a lifetime seeking to atone himself by giving money to the family, by working with um, felons who have been released from prison in terms of their... um, He he actually works with prisoners at risk. A large number of prisoners in our system in the United States are at risk for suicide. And he's actually working with prisoners at risk, preventing them from killing themselves. So this kind of participatory look, that's the deeper magic uh, for all of us, it strikes me. And I use the word magic in the sense that sometimes um, it's not a matter of argument or evidence that you can give somebody who's in the middle of, let's say, an extramarital affair or a um, cruel relationship. Sometimes it's not just a matter of being able to argue with the person. Sometimes it's showing a person loving compassion and being willing to sit with them, which can be very, very painful. Uh, and I remember doing that with one friend of mine who was suicidal. And by the grace of God, fortunately, he did not commit suicide. He sought help and brilliant recovery. But it's that kind of dynamic, affective movement that needs to take place. If you like, uh, the ransom theory is more in common with what you might call a romantic theory of the atonement than a juridical or juristic one. That is, rather than it being a matter of forensics and legality, it's a matter of an affair de cour, an affair of the heart, where somebody looks somebody in the eye and you can feel their sympathy, compassion, and sorrow in which they liberate the other. There's a beautiful scene when Diggory and the magician's nephew is talking about his ill mother, and he wants to save her, and he looks into the eyes of Aslan, and he sees deep tears coming from Aslan's um, tawny mane, and he's struck by this, like even the, the compassion, but sometimes it's showing somebody that real, a matter of affective identification. And then when you can add on to it, that the God that we are facing is actually the God of life who can bring life out of death, that it's it's that whole process of forgiveness, seeking reconciliation, and then participating in this bringing life out of death. 
I've had to resist throughout this entire interview to not bring up the word theosis, but I'm just going to have to do it now. A lot of what you're describing, particularly as soon as you talk about anything like participation and transformation, I think of the Eastern concept of theosis, that it's becoming a partaker of the divine nature. This is in the way that we are actually brought right with God by sharing in his life. And in Christianity, that life is communicated principally through the cross. Absolutely right. And I think it it actually dovetails with this bit. And that is, um, it, it it's evident that merely bringing, even in this heinous case of bringing back to life or holding in God's as I say, indestructible love, the soul of the person that my prisoner uh, killed. It's not enough for there to be resurrection or renewed life because you might kill the person again. Like the um, film where Denzel Washington says, uh, Equalizer, the second one, he says, I'm going to kill each of you. And he says, the only thing I regret is I can only kill you once. But in terms of redemption, it's not enough that somebody comes back even as given life again. No, that person needs to be embraced. There needs to be ideally forgiveness, redemption, transformation, theosis. And you've mentioned The Magician's Nephew a lot, which is great because that's the book that we're doing this month. But as you were speaking, I also thought a lot about The Voyage of the Dawn Treader and Eustace's transformation. And you described it as an affair of the heart. Well, in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, when Aslan starts to undress Eustace as a dragon, he even says, it felt like it went straight to my heart. Yeah, that's just an awesome image. And everybody knows what happens when you sleep on treasure. You become a dragon. (laughs) (laughs) Only if you've read the right books. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Um, It does occasion this one illustration from a very early Christian writer who pictures the redemption in terms of confronting a dragon. And what happens in this narrative is Christ is pictured as being allowing himself to be eaten by the dragon, being consumed, and then bursting out from inside the dragon. So this is where Christ entering into death and then overcoming it. But of course, in this case, Christ is, as it were, yeah, shedding the very scales of uh, ill-doing that Eustace had built up from reading the wrong books <laughs> at his modern schools. <laughs> Who was the early writer? Hippolytus? Um, it may have been. Okay. It sounded vaguely familiar, but it's been a long time since I'd read that. <laughs> it's, a, it's a kind of semi-Gnostic text, but actually quite stunning. It's interesting that the role of dragons in uh, Christian iconography is largely negative, but some dragons in some of these stories in the Christian Imaginarium become transformed. Even even in the Harry Potter books, Rowling was, uh, I think, is a practicing Anglican, and uh, at least one dragon um, comes through. So if you're a dragon out there, there's still, there's hope for you. There's hope for them. (laughs) I love it. Before we start to wrap up, there's one question I did want to ask you about Aslan's sacrifice, because I've heard this interpretation quite often. And now, not that we want to commit the sin of allegory, but a lot of Christians have seen the deep magic as pointing to the moral law, which we naturally, not naturally, but uh, which we rebel against, and the deeper magic as pointing to that of grace. What do you make of that? 
I think that's a plausible reading. I think this is very much in keeping with the Christian understanding of grace and of life lived in the presence of God. The Latin would be corum Deo, that is life lived before God. What What is it? Is it um, ordinary virtue and morality, but just maybe illuminated a little bit, elevated? And I think not. That is, grace is not just undeserved merit, you know, whereby you have a moral life and you get to be a little more courageous than you would otherwise be and and so on. It's really altogether not different, but it it strikes to something, um, I will say, deeper than this. I'll give a, a quick example. I used to work in a soup kitchen um, all through grad school, and there was this dear Anglican monk who would sometimes oversee things. And there's one fellow who came to the dinner that night and had this very long machete, actually, on him. And myself and some other helpers, we had about 70 people that night, were getting ready to confront him and get the machete off him and, you know, restore safety. But Father Clayton, this very saintly English, as were Anglican monk, who was a former uh, sergeant in the military, a very tough as nails person, but gentle as could be. He went and just talked with the person. And I was doing dishes and Father Clayton came up with me. He said, things have been taken care of. I said, why, Father Clayton? And he lifted his cowl and there was the knife. He had it on him. And uh, then when I left, I may have been hearing the confession of the young man who had brought the machete. And what I would say is, Father Clayton was working with deeper magic. It wasn't just a matter of no weapons are allowed on the premises and you'll be prosecuted. Well, we weren't going to prosecute these people who were indigenous. They had no property, basically. But it wasn't just a matter of keeping to the rules. It was a matter he circumvented this. I didn't hear the conversation, but I doubt he said, you know, that's against the rules. I think he probably expressed to this young man a love that he perhaps had very little acquaintance of. And it was Amor Vincent Omnia, Love Conquers All. It was one of those moments of it was through love and sacrifice in the sense that it took time and it was a risk. He could have been injured. I was bitten once by one of these people, and I still have a scar from it. So you're taking a risk, and yet you're disarming somebody through the sacrifice of time, energy, and love. Love is costly. You know, when something bad happens to that young man, and you really love that person, you're going to suffer. And so it's, it's through suffering and loss, that's the deeper magic both in Narnia and I think in life. And I think that's a great way to end. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, as I hear the landlord ring the bell for final drinks, can you please tell us where people can go to pick up a copy of your book, A Narnian Vision of the Atonement, and anything else you'd like to advertise? You can find it on Amazon or at the publisher's website. If you'd like audiobooks, I have three other books that are audiobooks. And they're read by charming Australian actresses who are in the show uh, Homicide. And so I recommend um, you can actually listen to them for free through Amazon. So check out Anarnian Vision of the Atonement. But also if you like Australian shows like Homicide, and you want to listen to a book while you're commuting, uh, you can check out those books that are on audiobooks. 
What's the first one they should listen to? I would check out A Beginner's Guide to Philosophy of Religion. I think that's not bad. And I have one on aesthetics, A Beginner's Guide. And both are really well read. <laughs> by people much more attractive than me and with really cool Australian accents. Yeah, shame you couldn't have got an English accent, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thank my guest again for coming on the show. To our audio engineer, Taylor Schroll, who is going to have to stitch together a couple of interviews because we had all kinds of technical issues. Taylor, I believe in you. And thanks to all of our listeners, patron supporters. You guys, you help us do what we do. And I'd particularly like to call out our top tier supporters, Matt1, Matt2, Jake, Erica, Marvin, Joel, Deborah, Amanda, Emmy, Thomas, Bill, Joanna, Bud, Shane, Kay, Paul, Gimli, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Kelly, Chris, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. And if any of you are Patreon supporters at the moment and refer a friend, I'm going to send you another Pints with Jack glass to say thank you. And we pray for all of you every week, particularly every Tuesday, and all of the prayer requests on our Slack channel. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media. And join us next time when we'll continue going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.